Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, you're welcome to the McClifford Podcast. And today, Friday, October the 4th, every week this podcast will bring you a slice of current affairs that you might find engaging and informative. We look at the big stories of the week. And we also hope to delve into some of the off-agenda stories that we featured in the Irish Examiner and our unique interpretation of those stories. Now, today, a constant issue that's been in the headlines over recent years is the discovery of shoddy and dangerous building practices from the so-called Celtic Tiger era. Major structural and fire safety defects have been discovered in over 40 developments around the country, mainly of apartments. And these are the only ones that we know about that are in the public domain. Professionals and academics in the construction business say that there are many, many more that have been kept below the radar because of justified fears, I suppose, that any exposure would affect the property prices. This has become a major political issue, particularly as the shoddy and dangerous work went on at a time of what's known as self-regulation. In other words, the government and the state, they handed over the business of regulating, of policing, building to the construction industry and said... Regulate yourselves, lads. And that seems to have been what happened. And that seems to have been at the root of an awful lot of this stuff that is now coming to the fore. I suppose in retrospect, we can say it was a recipe for disaster. But the state's attitude since then has been that all of this is a matter for the private sector. And as of now, certainly, there is no question of the government stepping in and creating some form of a fund to recompense the people who are very much out of pocket now in efforts to make their homes safe. One of the refrains, I suppose you could call it, that we keep hearing now is that this issue will only be taken seriously, unfortunately, whenever there is a fire with a fatality and that will create a major controversy. Some might say that's a cynical way of looking at things. History would suggest that that seems to be the way we look at a lot of issues of this nature. One way or the other, the reality is there was a fire already in a development that was found to have fire safety defects. This fire occurred now in 2002 and it resulted tragically in the loss of two young lives. It happened in a development in West Dublin called Verdemont. Now, put this in context, 2002, nobody thought there was a widespread issue with construction defects, with things not being built properly, with buildings effectively being dangerous. So there was no major investigation following the fire that effectively killed these two people in Verdiment. They both died of smoke inhalation. Verdiment had been built the previous year and there was a brief inspection. There was a guard investigation. Things moved on. Nothing major was done. Roll it on 15 years. 2017. There was another fire. This time, 100 homes had to be temporarily evacuated until they discovered what was wrong. There was a major investigation. Remember, now we're talking about a time when everybody knows there may well have been issues with a lot of the building defects. It turns out there was serious defects here. One estimate of the remedial work that's required is €14 million. Euro. That complex is now being patrolled 24-7 by fire wardens who are you know, effectively security personnel that are put in place 
in case a fire breaks out and they're able to alert people for the simple reason that the, the, the fire safety features of the building are not trusted. That, of course, is something that we have in dozens of developments now around the country. One other element to this story in terms of 2017, a man who'd been working in the area, he was something of an activist, Tony Rochford, he investigated the history. He went back and looked at the 2002 fire, the fatal fire, and he came up with what he considered to be serious evidence of at least negligence. Tony Rochford attempted to have the Gardaí to examine this evidence, and when he didn't meet any success, and that's not to any fault of the Gardaí, I'd have to say, he then made a very public protest on the M50 which involved stopping the flow of traffic there, getting up in a gantry. That led to a criminal conviction and he's now serving a prison sentence for that. All of that is by way of background to Verdimont and these two fires bridged by 15 years. The two young people who died in 2002 were a couple, Mick O'Farrell and Louise Wall. As far as their families are concerned, their deaths were never properly investigated. I spoke to Louise's mother, Margaret, and her husband, Richie, about their loss and I started by asking Margaret about the fire in 2002, which occurred on a bank holiday Monday, March the 18th. Well, we were away that weekend of March 16th to the 18th, down in Curraclough, in our mobile home. And we were very happy. And at that stage, you were originally from Cork, you lived in Cork, you had a family in Cork, and then you moved to Dublin and you met Richie in Dublin. No, I actually met him in Cork. And then I moved to Dublin, yeah, yeah. And you, you, you had children from a previous marriage? Yes, I had five children with my ex-husband, and then we had two children later on. And in March 2002, you were living in Clansill in West Dublin? I was, yeah, yeah. And then we come to the 18th of March, that was the Monday bank holiday weekend from that St. Patrick's weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, you'd been away for the weekend down in Wexford, and your daughter Louise and her boyfriend Mick O'Farrell were living in Verdimont in Blanchardstown. And Louise had a little boy, Dylan. Dylan. And was Dylan staying with you at the time? No, my son Shane was actually minding him that night because it was um, Bank Holiday weekend and Louise was going to go out, but... And on the, on the Monday, on the 18th of March, am I correct that Shane went over to Louise's house in Verdemont to drop back Dylan? Dylan was about three at the time. Yeah, that's correct. Um, they went back, he went down about seven o'clock with Dylan and a friend of theirs um, dropped him down and the, he rang the bell and there was no answer and he just tried the door and the door was actually unlocked. But he couldn't get any lights in there and his friend shone the lights of the car on the house and he saw the trip switch and he and he noticed that it was terrible um smell there, smell of smoke and everything was black. And he ran up the stairs and ran around the house until he found Louise dead in the bat. And Mick he eventually found Mick. He couldn't see him. He was in the bedroom under so much soot that he didn't see him for a while. And the child had run up the stairs after him. And he banged, He closed the door of the bathroom. The child said, what's in there? And he said, oh, i just seen a big spider. Don't go in there. You know? And so his f- friend brought the child home and he rang the guards and rang me. 
And you rang you, you were at home, and was it one of your daughters took the call initially? Yeah, my daughter Gillian took the call and she passed it to Michelle. I heard her saying something about fire brigade, but Michelle's husband was just gone to work and he was a fireman, so I thought it was about that. And Michelle started crying and handed me the phone. And I said, what's going on, Shane? And he said, um, the... They found Louise and Mick dead. I said, what do you mean you found him dead? See, they're dead. She's in the bath dead and he's on the floor in their apartment. It's covered in soot. So, I don't know. I was very calm. I was being in shock. I just said, phone to Garrison. He said, he already did. And I went straight down there then. Louise was 21. Louise was a quite shy person. She shy, but um, she was ambitious as well, even though she had a little boy. She didn't want to be a stay-at-home mum. She put him into a crash and she got herself a job and she done herself a course. And um, she, she was just after finishing her exams when she died. Because we got the results after she died and she passed everything. But um, she was quite person and... Um, You'd never know she was even in the house because she was very quietly spoken. So Louise and Mick, they were living together in Verdemont, this um, development that had been built the previous year in 2001 near the Blanchardstown shopping centre. Yeah. They'd moved in there a month previously and he visited them in Verdemont. And Richie, you visited as well. Did you notice something when you visited the, the, the apartment after they'd moved in about the fire alarms? Yeah. Going back now, um, it, it was actually uh, when I walked in and, I mean, Louise, God love her, she was just, ah, she was over the moon. She was showing us this, that, the other. And I happened to turn around and I said, you seem to be missing a light, uh, a light bulb there. I, I, I really didn't pay much attention to it. But um, it actually transpired later on then that, that was the wording for a fire alarm, which was not in situ when they moved in. Yeah, and that's something that would become very significant afterwards because at some stage there was a suggestion that the fire alarm had been removed. But in reality, and I think this is acknowledged finally, it was not removed. It simply was not installed properly. The implication if it was removed would be suggesting that Louise and Mick had come in and they'd found it inconvenient and they removed it. But that was not the case. Not but that was inferred at one stage. Yeah. So we know the situation whereby young couple with their young child, they're inside in the apartment a month. There is this fire. No fire alarm goes off. Um, it was subsequently found that there was a number of other fire safety issues with the apartment and they both died very quickly from smoke inhalation. So at 7pm 7, 7 on March the 18th, the bodies of Louise and Mick were found here. Um, it's believed that they may have been there since 1am yeah. the previous morning when they yeah. came home. Subsequently, it was found that they had died of smoke inhalation and that they'd been overcome by the fumes yeah. very quickly. Yeah. When Margaret was the first indication that you had that there may have been something wrong with the apartment? Well, um, on the Sunday, the week, a um, couple of days after her funeral, myself and Richard went out for dinner up to Clonsilla Inn and... I picked up the Sunday World. I was on 
the table and on the front of it there was something on about they choked to death, you know, in their apartment. I was so I picked it up and I read it and I don't know where all this came from. And I read it and it said about the fence um must have been blocked or something that they choked. So I got Shane. I had the key of the apartment and we went down to it and Shane took down the vent in the kitchen and we could see that it was bricked up from inside. Could not see outside, even though there was a grill on both sides. That was only a decoration. And it was the same with most of the apartment. So quite obviously there was a problem with the vents that would have, for example, in the instance of fire, prevented the smoke from being released mm-hmm. out there. Um, no, it should also be stated that in the days after the fire, the local authority examined the apartment. According to records from Garda witness statements at the time, this examination was done for 16 minutes. And that's the only inspection of the apartment that there was after that fire. Mm -hmm. So now you're left in a situation whereby you've lost Louise and and Mick and quite obviously his family as Mm -hmm. well. And now it appears that perhaps there was something faulty within the apartment. Yeah. How did that make you feel at the time? Oh, I was so annoyed. I was so annoyed. I couldn't understand that it was only new and they were only there just less than a month. And um, they they told me about the alarms not being in there and my son-in-law, who's a fireman, told him to get on to the landlord and this makes it he would. And the landlord said afterwards in court that um, he didn't know why they were down. Or he said something like, Mick must have taken them down. But Mick was working around the clock. He was hardly able to... He was just coming home in the evening and that was it. Why would he take down an alarm? That would have been needed. But in the meantime, we spoke to the plumbers that were working on the apartment before they moved in. And they said they were taken down because of flooding in the ensuite in the bedroom. And that was prior to the couple moving in, Mick and, and Louise. Yeah, in. but we didn't talk to them till after they died. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But the, the the main point out of that being that they were not responsible for taking down fire alarms. Not at all. Exactly. Not at all. Yeah. So we have, we have that scenario, and then if you just move it forward, first of all, we had a guard investigation at the time. The superintendent who investigated it believed that there was a case there to prosecute the builders on the basis that there was fire safety defects that may have contributed to the deaths. He recommended to the DPP that there be a prosecution, yet the DPP ultimately decided that there wasn't a case to be taken. Now, it's difficult to conclude why the DPP might have done that. One possible explanation is that Despite the Garda evidence being strong, the DPP may have come to the conclusion that the evidence from the building inspection uh, department was not strong enough to bring a prosecution. And questions may arise as to why that was the case, not one way or the other. Despite the superintendent recommending a prosecution, nobody was prosecuted over this fire in which two young people lost their lives. No, I was annoyed with that because the DPP, if he didn't get... A strong enough report, he should have insisted on more information. You know, just don't accept it. 
just ask for more information and he may have got more because they just went to bed and they died and it's like sure they don't matter they're only an ordinary couple you know they weren't killers they weren't drug addicts they weren't anything that would um, keep them in the limelight for longer than what they did you know yeah and I suppose it should be stated as well though that the DPP it's an independent body and they do assess yeah. evidence and decide on the basis of that whether or not there's a case to go ahead for a prosecution but one way or the other they didn't so the only forum then Margaret where ye had a chance to see some exposition of what happened was the coroner's court and that took place later that year yeah. in um, in 2002 that's right yeah we went up there um, it was in Tello wasn't yeah. it yeah he actually asked the inspector uh, what the protocol was as regards uh, uh, passing a house or an apartment fit for habitation, the final cert. So uh, the inspector, uh, Julie, went through that. Um, the coroner then turned around and asked him, uh, can you remember, to your knowledge, uh, did you inspect number 73 Verdamont? Yeah. and um, the inspector said offhand uh, I can't really say whether I did or not and the judge was getting a bit agitated with this annoyed and he said you can't remember but like, you, you either inspected it or you didn't inspect it uh, no, no I didn't inspect it and how come you didn't inspect it how come did it get a, a cert with the way it's done is if there's a block of 10 ready, they're being uh, finalised by the builder and I get the word to go in and I will go in and I'll pick what, maybe two at random out of the 10 yeah. and inspect them. And the judge says, you pick two out of the 10 and do, do, do you certify the 10 then? Uh, yes. Yeah, and to be fair to the inspection department in the local authority, that would be standard at the time. We were dealing with a time that persisted right up until 2014 of so-called self-certification in which the developer was responsible for ensuring that the certificates were all in order, that the building was built according to design, and the local authority inspectors were basically there to do spot checks. And to be fair to the inspectors as well, I think there's wide acknowledgement they were under-resourced right across the state at the time. Um, and therefore, if you had an inspector who only inspected one or two out of ten, that's the way it was done on the basis that the primary responsibility lay with the developer because of self-certification. But there's no doubt that in this instance, somewhere along the line, there was a breakdown in terms of that process because the coroner, who you referred to there, Richie, he ultimately wrote to the local authority and he's after the completion of, of, of the inquest and said that he was concerned that the supervision of the building generally was inadequate and that in particular they were concerned that the jury in, in the coroner's court were concerned that other apartments or houses at this site might not have been completed properly and he asked the council to look after the matter. No, that wasn't done. Well, exactly, according mm -hmm. to official records. That was not followed up on and there was a response through the local authority pointing out that 
there, there was only so much inspection because you didn't want to make, have duplication of inspection. But ultimately, mm. I think there's no doubt that there were fire safety defects in this apartment mm. that simply were not detected. Yeah. And then we had two young people dying in yeah. horrendous circumstances. Yeah. And the thing is, our, our grandson could have been there last night. You could have lost him as well, you know. And thank God we didn't, you know, the Shane was looking after him. But, and thank God he was so young that he has no bad memories. Yeah, and, and ju- just for the sake of clarity, the fire itself, they, they believe, even though they don't have specific evidence, it may have started as a result of a mishap with the cooker. But as well, whereas Mick had some alcohol in his blood system, uh, Louise had virtually none. So it wasn't a question, nobody could make mm-hmm. it out. That it was a question that the two of them, for example, may have been blind drunk or something. No, they simply were not. She hadn't been well. She rang me that day, Paddy's Day, and we were still in Corraclough. I came back on the 18th. Little did I know that she was already dead. But she, she told me her throat was at her and Mick had gone out to watch the match. He followed Liverpool. And so, because Shane had the child, that was the reason she went out that night. But they weren't got out long and they came home so there we have a situation two people die in controversial circumstances 2002 it would appear there was virtually no follow up on it there was the 16 minute inspection there was the concern expressed by the coroner's court on the basis of the evidence that came before the coroner there was a superintendent who believed certainly on the basis of his file that there should be a prosecution None of these things happened and the ultimate follow-up from the coroner was correspondence within the local authority that suggested the the, the amount of inspections that had been done had been done. However, there was no reference in that correspondence to the fact that the coroner was concerned with the situation going forward, that it should be inspected. Other apartments should be inspected to see if the same issues persisted. Ultimately, that was to become a lot clearer another incident mm-hmm. 15 years later but we'll, mm-hmm. deal, we'll deal with that soon but from your point of view you're left now um, with a scenario you've lost your daughter Shane your son who found Louise was it had a big impact on him yeah Shane God love me him and Louise there was only 11 months between them so they were good friends and they shared the same friends and um, he went down and he found their bodies and he never came to terms with it. He was going to work and walking out of work and he ended up in Blanchestown Psychiatric Ward a couple of times. And am I right, Margaret, on one occasion did he go up to the to the apartment? This was sometime after the deaths. He did, he did. He was actually staying with his friends that time and he went up there and he was shouting and giving out. He, was, he didn't know how to... Preferably sit down and talk about it. You only know how to shout about it and give out. And he was, I think the tenant that was there that time might have been afraid because it was obviously this fire because there was no sign of fire on that weekend. And it was a long weekend and there was a lot of people not there. So a lot of it was... Um, very quiet. Nobody knew about it because a lot of foreign people lived there. So maybe she didn't know about it. 
or he, whoever was there. Well, so they, they wouldn't have realised the history of the apartment yeah. that there had been this fire months previous. Yeah, and they mightn't have understood why Shane might have been there giving out, you know. But he obvi- it obviously had a major impact on him. And yeah, yeah. He, he, oh, he, he couldn't come to terms with it even. And he was even getting nervous walking down the road because we were saying, oh, that's, he was saying, God, I talked to somebody behind me. And we were saying silly things like, Oh, maybe Louise just looking after you. But that only scared him, so we couldn't say these things. We thought we were reassuring him. But no, he was only getting scared. But then he had good days, and we thought he was doing okay. We thought he was doing okay. And then I remember he bought his car, and I helped him get it. I went guarantor, and he took our insurance in case he was out sick or of work. And he worked away, and next thing, you know, after two years... We, we were talking on November 2004. Yeah, we'd only moved to Wellington Bridge in September 2004. In, in Wexford. Yeah, and he came down to us a few times, came down and saw the house, and he could see the builders working there, they were doing the attic for us at the time. And um, he was in good form, and just before he died, I hadn't seen him in a week or two, so I rang him, no answer, and his friend... And his friend's father-in-law was in our house the day before we found out he died. And they were doing our bathroom in the attic. And so I left that evening. I was going to Waterford. I was going line dancing on a line dance weekend. And the following morning, a priest and two guards knocked on my door to tell me. And how they found out where I was. They went to our house and Richard was gone into town. To get the car and CT or whatever it was. Text. Text. Oh, oh you had, oh, you had uh, dropped um, Stephen to school, my grandson, up in Clangain, and um, from there I proceeded into the county hall in Wexford to text the car. And I got back about just before 10 o'clock, and a little lady across the road, neighbour, and, and she knocked on the door. And she said that the guys would have to be in looking for me. And I, I just didn't know where, what way to think or look. or I, I didn't, didn't even know what to do. So she told me that I had to contact them in the security guard station. And she gave me the guard's name. I can't, offhand now, I can't remember it. So I rang him up and he actually answered the phone himself. This is about a half an hour later because I was just shaking. I just couldn't get the courage to... To, to ring up and um, I thought it may, may have been an aunt of mine who lived in Enniscarty something may have happened there but anyway I got through to the guard and um, asked me you sounds the song I said yes and he said I'm sorry to tell you but um, your son Shane uh, was found dead this morning in Kilmuckridge so needless to say I, I don't actually remember what happened after that it's just a complete blank um, I don't know whether he asked me where Margaret was. I think I may have mentioned it to him that she was over in the, uh, the I can't remember the name of the hotel. It's since closed down in in, in Waterford. It just uh, just couldn't believe it, and it, we look, we, we didn't know. I didn't know what Margaret knew, and uh, the heel of the hunt. Then uh, a friend of Margaret's, another Margaret, Margaret Eddie, She was lived in uh, Rosslare, and she came up. And um, she kindly drove me over to, over to Waterford, 
I came in and Margaret already knew at that stage the 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 guards and the priest had been in with her. So it was just we were just numbed, completely numbed. And I suppose uh, the the other element to it for anybody to lose a son or daughter, and particularly when they take their own lives, you know, it's just uh, doesn't bear thinking about the, no. the, the the impact. But you also had to deal with the fact that what had taken Louise's life two years earlier, two and a half years earlier, was still effectively unresolved as far exactly, as Exactly, yeah, exactly. It was like an open-ended book. It's still not resolved. And, I mean, people say to me, how am I getting on with it? I keep myself busy because if I sit down, I think. And... Louise's son Dylan, your other daughter Michelle. took in Dylan. Michelle took in Dylan. Yes, Michelle um, was only married nine months when Louise died, and Michelle was Dylan's godmother. So they said it was after the funeral. Herself and Willie, her husband, were going to take Dylan, and they did. And we were a bit cautious about it because Dylan said he didn't like Michelle. <laughs> he was only a small, did no toys in the house, but it turned out been very close and he's had a good relationship with Michelle and Willie and he's a happy young fella and he's going to college now in Dublin you know and um, so he's thank God he has he's had such a good upbringing that he's never felt he's missed out on anything and he's never dwelt on anything it's a small mercy to be to, to be yeah, grateful for yeah, yeah. but you, 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 your lifts Margaret and, and Richie with, with this horrendous situation having lost two um, this remains unresolved and you tried along with your other daughters to see get some form of as you would see a justice for what had occurred in that fire in 2002 well oh, like, oh, I couldn't really do justice because um, when I went to see a solicitor about it he said it could do something but you might lose, you might lose your home. And at that time, Richard was always working, he was never there. And um, I only went to, to the solicitor to see could I get a bit of compensation for Dylan. And that went on for a while, and I, I did. Not enough, but I did get it. And it's paid for the last couple of years now for his college, you know. And you're, you're, you're living with this quite obviously major pain to take through life. And then if we fast forward uh, to 2017, in Verdimont, the same development where Mick and Louise lost their lives, there's another fire. Mm. This time, fortunately, there mm. are no fatalities. Yeah. But about 100 people were moved out of their apartments and it is ultimately discovered that there were some major fire safety mm. defects in the apartment block. So 15 years yeah. after the, 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 the fire involving two fatalities, mm. there is finally, because of another fire, mm. acknowledgement that this place was not built properly. No, no, and that does make me very annoyed. Um, Louise and Mick died and because we were just a normal family, we were pushed under the carpet and... It didn't matter because we weren't important enough to talk about. That's the way I felt. And I could have gone 
shouting and roaring, but I, I needed somebody to do it with me. I needed somebody, but nobody at the time seemed to take any interest in it. it it's as if, did they, going back to the coroner's court, what the jury came up and what the, the, the summing up, what the coroner said, that his words were only to kind of, to me, thinking back, sympathise with us, because what he said, his nothing has been ha- adhered to as regards um, rules and regulations as regards fire safety. Absolutely none. There could have been f- really, really fatal uh, consequences in that last fire in in, in, um, in mm-hmm. Now we heard it did happen stupidly. Apparently, someone with a barbecue, and, and uh, that's not the point. No, the, the, the point is the capacity for a fire to spread. And, yeah. and, and that's the point yeah. with all of these things yeah. is whether or not, in, in, in the instance of making Louise, there were issues with the vents, so the smoke well, the between set, that and the fire they alarm. They said because their vents were blocked, the fire extinguished itself, so the smoke just choked them to death and it didn't go anywhere else because the vents were blocked. The policeman told me if the vents were open... The smoke would have gone out, and the fire would, might have spread. Yeah, and there's a, there's a, an, another issue, and a, it is to some extent in the realm of speculation. But this was two thousand and two, when there was no controversy around buildings, particularly. This, it was the early years of the so-called Celtic Tiger. There wasn't controversy over whether buildings were built properly. There was a huge amount of trust mm. in the way things were built, and you would have to suggest that if a similar fire arose today or even in the last few years mm. you can imagine the response on every level political yeah, yeah. Uh, public within the construction industry um, you can the response would be entirely different but because yeah. there was no uh, understanding of what was going on yeah. at the time as you said to a large extent it was not that anyone was covering it up specifically themselves mm. but it was not dealt with properly yeah. But here, after the 2017 fire, the, all the apartment owners were told that they would have to pay for the remedial yeah. one. And one estimate that they were given through the, the management company was that it would cost €14 million. Euro. And to this very day, because that remedial work is certainly not completed in its relative early stages, Verdemont is now patrolled by fire wardens 24-7 on the basis that if there is a fire in any of the apartments, these people will be there to alert them because the trust in the system and in the quality of the building is such that... You, 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 no existence. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that, that's so serious. And it should also be pointed out that Verdemont is not unique in that regard. There mm. are possibly dozens of developments around the country which yeah. are now patrolled by these fire wardens. But following the fire in 2017, and we, we said, as, as you said, Margaret, because perhaps you didn't have the wherewithal to pursue this legally or whatever, mm-hmm. one individual emerged who saw, as far as he was concerned, there was something wrong here. And that was Tony Rochford. And Tony is a bit of an activist. How, how did you come into touch with Tony? Well, my daughter rang me from Dublin and she told me she got a phone call from him. He got he got her number from somebody that she knew. I'm not really sure about it now. But, um, and she asked, would I talk to him? I said I would. 
So he rang me and we talked on the phone. He said he'd come down to me and he did. And I found him a very nice man and he was telling me what he knew. And I said, where were you all these years? I wish you were around all these years ago. And so um, Tony was working up there and he he took photos, he showed me photos and nobody would listen to him. None of the top boys wanted to know. And that was including the guards. And then we got to the day where the, both of you and Tony tried to bring this to the attention yeah. of the guardie. How, how, how did that come about? Well, Tony asked us would we go up and asked me to press charges again, or what was it, reopen the case, so that I could give yeah. a, a new statement, something like that. I wasn't really sure. But anyway, um, so we started off in Phoenix Park, and the guards there says, oh, we don't take anything like that, you'd have to go up to a proper guard station. You know, so Tony told them everything, but it made no difference. So we went down to Capital Guard Station, and the guard there, he knew Mick. He said Mick had done some work for him and he knew he was a lovely chap. And um, But he did say, this is not the place to be either. He said, you go back to where to the guards that you were dealing with. And we said, but they didn't want to know before. But see, just go back up, talk to them. The point has been here. And um, we did. And they weren't very helpful. And at some stage then, Richie, you decided you were going to go home. You'd, you'd enough running around for today. Yeah, I, I more or less threw me hat at it. Even though, I mean, it was of the utmost importance. But we were, I can see we were actually getting nowhere, uh, judging on the response of the guards. Now, the, the, the sergeant, uh, he was either a sergeant or, or an inspector in Cabra, and he was very, very understanding the whole lot. And he, you could actually talk to him. Tony, the longer it went on, the more Tony got. He got very, very agitated. Um, he was raising his voice. He was, he was suddenly bringing notice on himself, really. And, and uh, more so than the guys said, look, we're not talking to you. The condition you're in. So um, I left yeah, him. When you say that, he, he wasn't drunk or anything oh, oh, no. Tony was very excited about that yeah, yeah. exactly yeah yeah. he was so adamant that he wanted to get his point across he had a briefcase with documents in it and he didn't even get a chance to open it he went into the office for him I think it's when you just left oh Blanche's home yeah he went into the office to talk to one of them and I thought he was getting somewhere and he was in there a good while and I thought I was going to be called in then but no no. And eventually, Margaret, you decided to go home as well. Well, I think we were wasting our time there. They just said to me, um, do it, um, come up and um, if we'll see what we can do for you. And um, at that time then, I said to Tony, I'll make, I'll go home and... Did I have to drop him back? I can't remember. The Phoenix Park, was it? So you, you, you were at home, Richie, oh, yeah. and you turned on the news and... Or, or perhaps with social media, not everybody uh, saw and you saw something that rang a bit of a bell with you. I, I, um, Margaret was in Long Home, uh, and um, where you home at that stage? No, when I came home, Richard, I, I, I you, noticed were this, you were joking. I noticed this thing on a uh, teletext uh, uh, on the, 
the the, the what the, uh, RDA.ie news and um, actually it was on my phone I got it and uh, with that Margaret came in and I says where, where do you have to be up there and she says what do you mean I said did you look at the text and the phone and she says no why what's that but um, Tony Rochford had got up on the gantry of the M50 cutting the wires of all the, all, all, all the cameras and uh, was refusing to come down and I mean, we were just we were shocked by what he did we knew he was I knew he was very very annoyed because no one would listen to him but I did not think that he was going to take it to that extreme that he actually did but thanks to God he was coaxed down and he came down and without um, he didn't put up any um yeah, I, I, I think what he did was ultimately Garda went up and, and coaxed him down, did a, a very yeah, good job. Yeah. He made the point, he was making Just, the point as far as he was concerned. But that's he, all he wanted to do was make a point. Yeah. As I said to him when I was going home, I said, what are you going to do now? I, what I meant was, I'm going to go home now. And he said, I'm going to try something else. But I thought he meant something in the future. So he must have felt something in his mind. So he obviously felt so strongly he mm. wanted to make a, a display, yeah. a, a public yeah. Um, yeah. protest, you could put it. Yeah. It has to be said, what he did was extremely dangerous. I mean, the M50 yeah. was closed for a while. Um, the yeah. Cars passing down underneath the gantry. It was really dangerous. Well, he told me, I said that to him. I said, Tony, I did want you to break the law to get attention. And I said, what you did was up in that well, you could have caused crashes. See, I couldn't, Margaret. Nobody could see me where I was. Yeah, I think, to be fair to Tony Rossford, a, a weak excuse, I think there's no doubt it was reckless. He was ultimately brought to court. He was brought to the Dublin Circuit Criminal Court. I was there, yeah. And that was in June 2018. And he, he, the judge acknowledged that a lot of people had a lot of good things to say about I don't Did you give testimony in his favour that day? I actually, I didn't. I wasn't called up. I had to sign some form before Tony, Tony had to give to his solicitor. I had to sign a form. I can't even remember what it was. And um, I did give, um, you know, it could have been something to do with his reputation. But um, anyway, I wasn't called up. But I was mentioned a good few times, but I wasn't called up. And Tony wasn't allowed to say very much himself. And I think, I, I think in fairness to the judge who was there at the time, the judge made a point to saying that a lot of people had a lot of good things to say about him. He um, he had no issue with uh, Tony Rochford's motivation, but no, on but the he basis... Did, he did say, why didn't you... Why didn't you go after McInerney instead of going after the M50? And I said the same to Tony afterwards, so he was right there. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, mm. it, it definitely was something reckless to yeah. do. The outcome of yeah. that was yeah. that Tony Rochford was sentenced to two and a half years in prison. He is still serving that sentence and he's due out perhaps later this year or maybe early next year. Um, he's, he's certainly made an effort to bring attention to the issue, but I don't think anybody could condone doing what he did mm. in, in his attempts to do that. No, but I can understand why. The man was frustrated. He was being sent away. They were dismissing him. And in the meantime, when I, I did go up to meet the inspector, and she says, yes, we'll open all this, but we don't want Tony Rochford involved. <coughs> 
to be fair, it could well be that any guardie who looked at it, they would have found Tony but, because of his passion. To yeah. be fair to the man, because of his passion, because of, of his insistence, and this, like anybody who comes across a scenario where they believe a grievous wrong has been done, mm. and it could be that perhaps he may not have been the easiest to deal with from the point of view of some of the guardie. Yeah. Um, and nobody, it has to be said, to be fair to Tony Ashford, nobody doubts his motivation and what he saw as basically an attempt to right what was an awful wrong done to two young people and their families, including yourselves. The other thing that strikes me, Margaret, and we've seen over the last four or five years, a number of times it comes to the fore in the media in that another development with fire safety defects has mm-hmm. been yeah. uncovered or has come to attention. When you see this sort of thing, does it does it bring anything back to you? Or? Of course, it brings it back to me all the time. Richie, you must see it as well, though, when you see these instances coming to the public attention. I mean, effectively, Verdemont, that's what happened. And people say these days, and I have to say, I've written about this stuff, and I, I'm, I'm, I, I wrote it myself prior to encountering your story, that nothing will change until somebody loses their life. Yeah. The reality is... Two people did lose their lives. Well, and actually, just three people. Shane lost his life because of it. You know, it might to them it mightn't be connected, but it is connected. He lost his life because he couldn't live without his sister. He he told us he couldn't live with what he saw because what we saw afterwards, we knew what we were going to see. He didn't. He went in, and he got such a shock, and he couldn't live with it. Hopefully, something will be done I mean, even if it's in a couple of years time but at least we know then that they didn't die in vain because they, they, this thing can only happen again until something is done as regards to rectifying those apartments and not only those apartments the, the laws have to be changed they have to be more rigorous and now recently you, you, you were back to the place where Shane took his own life yes I'm only living 20 minutes from there I find it hard to go up there but I did go up there uh, a few weeks ago, it would have been Shane's 38th birthday, and I went up to put flowers there with my daughter. And um, this elderly man came up behind me and he said, Oh, it must be at least 10 years since that. And then I realised it was the man that found Shane. And I said, No, I said, It's what is it, about 14 years? And he couldn't believe that so much time had gone by and he said to me I'll never ever get over that I wake up every day and the first thing I do is look out my window and look straight over there I'll never get over that he said and then he's passed away now two or three weeks after I I spoke to him God help him but um, and I was talking to a man in the hospital last week and he knew that man and he told me that he knew he never got over that. You know, that he was a neighbour. It shows the, the impact it has way beyond yeah, the family. Even. Exactly. Yeah, that's it. Richard Barber Brady, thank you very much for talking thank to you. us today. A very human and tragic story, I think it's fair to say. I think it's also fair to say that it is directly connected to the way that things were done in the construction industry during the building boom of the so-called Celtic Tiger years. One thing I certainly took away from it is that Were a fire as tragic as what occurred in 2002 to happen today in a building over which there were major question marks, there would be a very different reaction. There'd be a different reaction publicly, there'd be a different reaction politically, 
and there'd be a different reaction in terms of um, how exactly this was allowed to occur. In that context, it's easy to see why Margaret and Richie still harbour a sense of injustice over their loss. Okay, that's it for today. I want to thank producer Declan Conlon and JJ Vernon on sound. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify and can, you can let me know what you think at mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on Twitter at at mickcliff. Thanks for this week. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.